0: The other thing is, is Phil's talking about these books and these book studies we do as a church. There's a number of them that we've done. And so we've done The Gospel for Real Life by Jerry Bridges in the fall. And introducing this one, The Enemy Within by uh, Chris Lungard. There's just certain things that I would say are certain books that have uh, been very influential in my life. And I would say probably many of you as well. This, this book has been around We were just talking after Phil shared the announcement, since 1999, this is my wife's copy, and I was going through it because it was just in my bag, because one of my kids may or may not have left it behind somewhere, and anyways, not the point, the point is like if you were to go look at this book, this book has been used by my wife, and then probably me at different points since 1999, Um, it's one that you go back to, and uh, the reason for that is because sin, sin is a major problem in our life major problem. If, if you want to grow in your marriage, I'd say read this book. If you want to grow as a mom or dad in how you parent your children, I'd say read this book because the greatest problem that your kids have is sin. And as parents, we're called to care for them and help them uh, come to know Jesus. We can't save them, but but this book is just helpful in understanding the sin that exists in our lives, and not just as unbelievers, but the sin that remains as believers as well. And so it's, it's just a tool. And I'd say whether you join this class or not, which I'd highly recommend, um, if you don't join the class, I'd say buy this book and read this book, study this book. I believe Chris has taken uh, the young single men through this as well. It's just, it's an important book to read for that reason, just to understand, because it, until you die or until Christ returns, you're going to have to deal with the enemy that lives inside your heart. And that enemy is called sin. And this is just a a great resource. And I know Phil, as a teacher, will do an excellent job of leading you through this book as well. So again, I'd say if you're trying to grow in any area of your life, take that class. And I would also say take the other classes that we offer um, in the fall again when we come back after a new members class in the summer and stuff like that. But I can't recommend that book enough to you just to read personally. Um, now we're going to jump into our text. So 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. We're not going to jump in and read the text immediately. Um, some of this maybe just as way of introduction, just as a reminder. John, John has written this letter so that we would have assurance as believers that we know God. And that he knows us and that we've been saved and we're living out our life as saved men and women for the glory of God. He hasn't written this letter so that we would walk away with doubts in our minds as to whether or not we are actually Christians. And so he's writing this to give us some assurance, to give believers this sense of confidence that they've truly been saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone but John has been writing up to this point sort of sharing some tests with his readers and we've been the recipients of those tests in regards to if you say you're a believer if you say you're a child of the light because God is light and there's no darkness at all in him then then that's got to look like something and so what he's been getting at is saving faith genuine faith in jesus it it looks like a lot of things, and one of those tests that he gave us was that if we say we know God and we say we 're walking in the light, but what we 're actually doing is walking in darkness, then he he would say, "You really don 't have that fellowship with God that you say you do because you 're actually living a life of disobedience to god and then and then he gave us another test where he he told us that whoever says he's in the light yet, he hates his brother. He said, you're, you're actually still in the darkness. And so there's these tests he's thrown at us. Test of obedience and then this test of do I genuinely love my brothers and sisters? And if I'm walking in darkness or if I'm hating a brother or sister, then what he's, he's trying to help us understand is you, you might not actually be a believer. You might not actually really be saved because this is what believers look like when acted upon by the grace of God, their lives are radically changed. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but, but there's an evidence of the grace of God, and it looks like something. And so I, I share that because th- there's the potential danger of walking away from those two tests. And we're about to get into something else after verse 14, where, where John's going to talk about not loving the world but we're not there yet. He's got these three verses sandwiched in there because I, I think in some ways, pastorally, he just wants to sort of pause for a moment and encourage his readers. He wants to pause for a moment and, and sort of help us get rooted and grounded again back in the gospel because he's written this letter to give assurance. That we've genuinely been saved. And so he pauses here in verses 12, 13, and 14 to to sort of restate some really important truths. That he wants his original readers to know and remember and be rooted and grounded in. As they look at their lives in light of God's grace being poured out upon them. And so let's look at these three verses. John 2.12-14 2:12 through 14 says the following He says I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us as a church. That we would, we would receive all that you have for us through these three verses. That we would receive all the encouragement that we're meant to receive. That, that Lord, you would help us just to be rooted and grounded in these truths found in these three verses. Lord, that you would help us to build just these rock-solid convictions upon these truths. And that these convictions, Lord, would, would guide us and lead us in the way in which we live as we seek to obey you, as we seek to love brothers and sisters and the world around us, as we seek to not love this world or the things of this world, but to love you, to pick up a cross, and to follow you, Lord. I pray that these important truths found in these three verses would have a profound effect upon our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So at first glance, looking at these three verses, it would appear like John is is writing to three different groups of people. He addresses children, he addresses fathers, and then he addresses young men. And he does that two times. He could be dividing the church up into different age groups, or he could be using these three terms to refer to men and women who are at really different stages of maturity in regards to their faith. For my studies, it appears as if John really is is addressing two groups of people, young men and fathers. And the children that he's addressing in these verses is really the church in general. And so part of the conclusion you come there is John's already referred to the readers of this letter as my little children. you got to remember John's 80 plus years old. He's a father of the faith. He, he's using that term earlier in this letter to get the attention of everybody he's writing to. It's a a term of endearment. It's a a term of love for the people that he's writing to. And so I believe that when he's writing these words and we see him address children in the church, he's talking to the entire church. And then the fathers and the young men, he's probably most likely referring to, as fathers, more mature men and women in the church, men and women who have grown in their faith, who have some experience of picking up a cross and following Jesus, trusting in the Lord, and then the young men just referring to the young folks in the church, meaning those who are spiritually not as mature, maybe as the fathers and mothers of the faith. And if you think about it, it's kind of how the church, the church is. Just, just think about your own life. You may be a father in the faith today. You may be a pillar in the church, a mom in the church to, to many because you've, you've been saved years ago. And you've read through the Bible many, many times. And God's walked you through many seasons of great joy and many seasons of suffering. And you've gleaned some wisdom over the years. I'd say every church has that. I sort of refer to them as like the pillars in the church. Those are the men and women whom are just rooted and grounded in the gospel, who've lived a long life of seeking to honor and obey the Lord, have, have just picked up on many godly wisdom principles and are seeking to live them out. And those are the people in the church that, that you kind of look to for help. You kind of look out at and you say, okay, this person has has walked through life and, and there's some things I can learn from them. And then you look at any church, and I'm not just referring to our church here, but you do have the young men and you do have the young women in the church. Those who are not as mature, again, those who have maybe recently gotten saved or those who have only been saved for a few years or those who just haven't matured as much yet. And what I'd say that is, as we talk about these different stages of people in the church, I say there's no shame in wherever you might find yourself. Because I would say to be a father in the faith, to be a mother in the faith, it it takes a lot of years. It, It takes time. It takes experience. I mean, I look to a Phil Friesen, somebody I get the privilege of sitting in the office with pretty much on a daily basis, and I'd consider him a, a father in the faith in this church. He's lived a lot of life, and I knew Phil 20 years ago. I guess I've been here 18 years. I met Phil at least 19 years ago. We met I think, but be able to walk and to live life with him. I, I put him in the, the father category because he's mature. And I've seen him grow in this mature. He probably wouldn't necessarily say that himself, but that's one of the things I love about Phil. And I think that's one of the characteristics of a father in the faith is, is there's just a level of humility present. And Phil's not the only one here. There's, there's many of you present in the church who I like this, I just had the privilege over the last several years of watching Phil and seeing it, but, but he'd represent that. And so you, you get it, you get what I'm talking about. Whether you've been in this church for a long time or you're, you're coming from a different church and you're just visiting today, you can look out and you can say, that, that's a father or mother in the, in the faith. This is, this is a younger, more immature believer. But I mean, again, I say it, there's no shame in any of that because Phil wasn't always a father in the faith. At one point, he had just gotten saved. He had to grow into that, and there had to be a lot of just God's grace present in his life. But that's what I believe John is addressing as we work our way through these three verses. And what we're going to see in these three verses is that he's, he's wanting the church to recognize some just very important truths. And do not think at this moment about the things they have to do. Because what you're going to see in this text is that, that there's, there's no commands to do anything. These are just truths to know. Truths to remember. Truths to be encouraged by. And so what we're going to do is we're going to just kind of go through each verse. And we're going to go and we're going to look at, at each sort of person that he addresses and look at what he says to that person or to those group of people that we might also be encouraged by John from. And so we're going to look at six points. In our first point, we learned this. Number one, our sins are forgiven. Number one, our sins... forgiven. Look again at verse 12. He says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I've spoken a lot over this past year about what it means to sort of live in the good of the gospel. Hopefully you've you remember that phrase. That's just one of those things that have stood out to me as we've gone through Galatians and Jonah and now through this and And for some reason, I just like to say it a lot, I encourage it, live in the good of the gospel. And some of you have asked, well, what does that mean? And I think it, I think it, I think John's going to hit at that for us here in this verse because living in the good of the gospel means we're living in the goodness of knowing and understanding that our sins are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. This is a, a, a truth I think we can so easily just just move on from. But isn't it interesting here as John's leading and uh, writing this letter and he's just talking about sin and Christ being our advocate and if you don't walk in the light but you walk in darkness then you might not really be a believer and if you don't love your neighbor, or you don't love your brother or sister, you might not actually have real genuine fellowship with God. And so just in case you might be consumed with your own sin, he pauses and he just says this truth. He says, hey church, brothers and sisters, little children, I want you to know this. Your sins are forgiven. All of your sins, past Present and future sins have all been forgiven for his name's sake. The verb he uses here in this sentence, it's in the perfect tense, which communicates the following. Your sins have been once and for all forgiven by God and will never be brought up again. That's pretty good news, is it not? Think about how you wrestle with your own failures, weaknesses, and in this case, your sins. Think about how they they come up and they can haunt you. And you can just be so aware of them. Sometimes you you just feel them like that, where they're just there. It's in front of you, and it's just saying, this is who you are. You're a liar. You're a cheater you're a thief, you're immoral, you're a deceiver, just, just name it. And they can just they can just be right there. You, you don't really love your brother. You don't really love your sister. You don't actually pick up a cross and follow Jesus because you're lazy. They can just be there in front of you. And what John is saying, no, listen, this is what you need to know. Though you have an enemy that lives in you and is Present Its power has been broken. It doesn't define you. And what you need to know is that your sins have all been forgiven. Once and for all. And will never be brought up again before God. This is such good news. Such good news. And John wants us as a church to know this. God wants us to live in the good of this good news. And he wants us to understand that the reason our sins are forgiven is not because of something that we have done. Do You see there at the end of that verse, he says, your sins are forgiven for whose namesake? It's not your name. It's not my name. Your sins are forgiven for his namesake, referring to Jesus Christ. See, we're forgiven because of what He has done for us. We're forgiven because He lived a perfect life, never having sinned. We're forgiven because He took that perfect life to a cross and was crushed by God for our sins as payment for our sins so that our sins would be forgiven once and for all. And we're called to live in the good of this. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes the following about this forgiveness. He says, The Christian is not a person who is seeking forgiveness or who is hoping to be forgiven. The Christian is not a person who is uncertain about forgiveness or tries to merit merit it. No, Christians are people who know that they're forgiven. That's what John wants for us to do. This is what God wants us to do. In the sense to know, he just wants you to know, you're forgiven. Live in the good of that forgiveness. You're forgiven because God so loved the world, he sent his son Jesus to die for us. In some ways, I think I've warned you about this many times, I think, in message. I, like, at one point, all I'm going to do is I'm going to stand up here before the Lord calls me away from this or I die. Is just stand up here and, and just share that good news over and over and over again. Because I know what it's like. To be on the other end of it, to hear it and and not believe it. Because I can be more aware of my own sin. I, I can tell you the gospel, but there are moments in my life where, where I'm not living in the good of the gospel because I'm just more aware of my deficiencies, I'm more aware of my failures than I am of the truth that those sins have all been paid for. That Jesus really was beaten. That his blood was really poured out as payment for all of our sins. And the reason I would like to stand up here and just say that over and over again until the lights come on is is because I think sometimes it it takes that. I know it does for me. Living in the good of the gospel means we, we recount that truth over and over again. Sometimes we just stay in that truth For a very long time. And that's okay. Until our hearts are moved. I mean honestly if you could live in my head at different points. During the day and during the week. You just hear that prayer over and over again. Lord may may I really know that my sins are forgiven. Just a lot of talking to myself. Rehearsing truths like this found in verse 12 that that I have been forgiven, not for my namesake, but because of Christ's namesake, because he did it and not me. Is that not good news? Church, live in that good news. If you're a believer, you are forgiven. Once and for all, because Jesus paid that price. In our second point, we learn, fathers, you know him who is from the beginning. And I would just say this, if, if you don't think you're a father in the faith, I, I, I think it's okay to receive the encouragement that John's writing to the fathers in the faith here. You might not be a father today, but Lord willing, you might be a young man or a young woman today in the faith, but, but one day, by the grace of God, you might find yourself being a pillar in the church, a father in the faith. And so here he's, he's writing to these older, more mature believers in the church, and he just says this, verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Now remember, I, I sat in the office with Phil and I, I read him that verse. And I said, "Phil, what do you feel?" And again, was, he's like the father in the faith. I did that, didn't I? Part of it was like, okay, so John's saying this to these older, more mature men. He's obviously saying this for a reason. And so I just said, "Phil, how does that make you feel?" And he's kind of like deer in the headlights for a moment. Like, what is he? What kind of trick is he playing on me? Because I play tricks on people. But if you're a father in the faith, I'm just curious, how do you feel about that? Because he could say anything he wants at this moment, and he says this, and he doesn't just say it once, he says it twice, and we'll get to that the second time around. He just wants you to know, you older men, you older women who have lived a long life walking with the Lord, he says this to you, you have known him from the beginning. I think in part the reason he says this is because there are some false teachers present, known as Gnostics. And they were sort of working their way in and they were trying to say, You might have known him from the beginning, but we have this special knowledge of him that you don't know about. And so John's writing this to encourage these more mature believers is no, that's not true. You've known him from the beginning and he hasn't changed. And there's there's really nothing new out there for you to have to go find about him. You know him. You are rooted and grounded in him. You know him well. David Allen writes, he says, The key mark of Christian maturity in this context is knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. And then John Stott goes on and he writes the following, he says, All Christians, mature and immature, have come to know God, but their knowledge of Him ripens with the years. Time hurries on, but in all generations they find a refuge in Him, who from everlasting to everlasting is God. See, maturity is not moving on to new truths. Maturing in the faith is just going deeper in the good ones that God has revealed to us. And in this good one, he's saying, no, you've known me. And you've known my son who's from the beginning. And you've walked with him. And so I think part of the application here is persevere. Persevere in the faith. Not looking to something new, but looking to the one you've known for a long time. This leads us to our third point. He says, I'm writing to you, I'm sorry, young men have overcome the evil one. Point number three. John writes, I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. So John doesn't want the younger men and the younger women in the church to think that they're somehow less than the older, more mature saints in the church here just because they might lack a little maturity in the faith. And I would just say I I lack that maturity. If if I'm being compared to Phil Friesen, who's got me by, Phil, what do he got me by, like 20 years? Not quite. Is it 20? I don't think it's 20. He's mature. I I don't, like I tell him this all the time when I ask him for advice on things. And I'm not saying this in a disrespectful way. I just don't know what it's like to be 60. I, I don't know what it's like to be an An empty nester, so to speak. I don't know what it's like to watch my daughter get married. He's just, he's lived life. He's lived more life. And it's a gift to me. And it's a gift to us as a church. And so he's, he's got some maturity and, and that's just the way life works. And I'm, and I'm good. I'm good with that. And so he writes to young men and and he wants the young men to know this truth that you've overcome the evil one. There's victory that you possess in Christ over the evil one. And the evil one here is Satan. And he's saying Satan has no authority over your life. Because he's been defeated by Jesus. On the cross, Christ has, has been victorious over him. And this is an important truth for young men young women in the faith to know and to understand is that you are victorious in Christ. We have an, an enemy that's prowling around like a lion and he's he's trying to destroy and deceive. And and John's here saying is as you seek to pick up your cross and follow Christ, you need to be rooted and grounded and understand that that you have victory here over the evil one. You're, you're stronger then you think you are in your faith by the very nature that you've been united to Jesus Christ. So the application, I think, and the encouragement here is pretty simple. Because you're victorious over Satan through faith in Jesus, you don't have to give him ground in your life. You don't, you don't have to give him room to sort of grow and influence the life that God's called you to live. You actually have power to resist the enemy and the evil and the destruction that he'd like to bring upon your life. Ephesians 4, 25 through 27, Paul writes the following. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another. And he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And then verse 27, he says, and give no opportunity to the devil. Because of the victory that we have in Christ over the evil one, I think the encouragement and the application here would be is don't give opportunity to the evil one. Understand that, that you live your life For the glory of God. And Christ lives in you. And he's poured out his spirit upon you. And I'd say. Don't play around with evil. Don't make room for evil things. And evil people. In your life. This is important. Because next week. John's going to call us to not love the world. Or the things in this world. And I think. Part of the fight against loving this world and the evil things in this world is being rooted and grounded in truths like this. You're stronger than you think. You have victory over the evil one. Stand firm, therefore, in Christ. This leads us to our fourth point where John again addresses the whole church. He says, I, well, point number four, you know the Father. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. When we receive Jesus as our Savior, we also get God as our Heavenly Father. Daniel Aiken writes the following. He says, the beauty of this statement is in its simplicity. The one who is God is now our Father. And He is a good Father, a great Father, and perfect Father. No longer is he our enemy, but through forgiveness of sins and his gracious adoption, we have come to know him as father. This is a simple truth. It's a simple truth. It's one that God wants us to be aware of, one that God wants us to be rooted and grounded and live in. And the simple truth is just this. God is our heavenly father. Father. I don't know how you think about your dad. Some of us have really, really good dads. You might have a really, really bad dad. You might have a dad that did great things for you, and then then you might be really disappointed in him. And I would say, as I've gotten older, one of the things I've learned about my dad is he's a gift from God. And however it is, he parented me. And as I get older, I just think back and, you know, to the memories I had growing up with him, and my dad's still alive and we still talk all the time, and I just think, man, he was a kid trying to raise kids. And the reason I think that is because that's kind of how I feel. I got, my kids are 21, 19, soon to be 18, and a 16-year-old, and I know I'm 44 years old, but if you could hop into my mind, and I'm sorry about this, sometimes I feel like I'm still just 16 years old. Or 18, or I'll, I'll do things, and then it's like, why in the world did I do that? But then i got to remind myself, but you're a dad. And then I think back to my dad trying to be my dad when I was younger, and I'm just thinking, he's just a kid trying to raise kids, and I think he did a pretty good job. But I'm just bringing that up to you because like, whoever your dad was or whoever your dad is, he, he's not your heavenly father. He's a gift that God gave you. But he's not perfect. And he was never meant to be perfect. He was meant to raise you in a certain way. God had some, some plans for him. And he may or may not have come good on all of those things. But he's also a dad that needs a savior. But, but we actually have a better dad than the one we currently have. Or the earthly dad he gave us. And it's our heavenly father. Who's perfect in all his ways. And he sent his son, Jesus. Jesus. To die for you. So that you would be forever forgiven and then brought into his family. Scripture talks about his being adopted. He, he makes you one of his children. He redeems you and he loves you perfectly. Cares for you perfectly. He's at work in your life perfectly for your good. You may not think that way, but that, that's who he is. And John just wants us to know that that's who our God is. He's actually our Heavenly Father who invites us to come to Him, to draw near to Him, to cast our our burdens to Him, to bring all of our anxiety and just share it with Him, to lament all the things that we feel are going wrong in this world and bring them to Him, to just cry out to Him and to run to Him because He's actually big enough to care for us. And to love us and to lead us. He's our heavenly father. This leads us to our fifth point. Which we've kind of almost pretty much covered. Number five is this. Fathers you know him who's from the beginning. I told you verse 14 and 13 were very similar. If not the same. And all I'd say here on this point is. I I think it's. An important point, anytime you see something repeated like this, typically it's being used to kind of drive a point home. So if you're an older, more mature believer in this church, or you're just a, a, a growing, more mature believer in this church, what, what John wants you to know is you don't need to move on to anything new, because you know him who's from the beginning. And again, I would say this, this verse, this truth is meant to help us to persevere. Because if you've lived the Christian life long enough, you begin to realize it's, it's really a long walk in the same direction. And, and there's a lot of temptations to get off on different things and explore different stuff. And I think in some ways John's saying, no, no, just keep your eyes on him who you've known from the very beginning. Do not stop ever looking at Christ. Don't move away from him. Don't move on from him. Just keep your eyes focused on him who you've known from the beginning. And his name's Jesus. And just keep following him. And you'll be okay. And this leads us to our sixth and final point. Again, he says, Young men, you are strong and victorious. He says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. There's three things John wants younger Christians in the church to know here. And the first one, again, is you're strong. You may feel immature. You may feel weak at times, but because you've been united together through faith in Christ, he's at work in you. He lives in you. You're actually stronger than you think. You actually possess a little bit of power to resist sin, to walk in the light, to resist the evil that's around you. You're stronger than you think because Christ lives in you. And that this spiritual strength, it comes from God, it comes from His Spirit, and and He also tells us here, because the Word of God abides in you. I think he's just drawing attention to just how important God's word is, and you've heard it from this pulpit, whether it's from me or Phil or whoever else has preached here over the years. Just how important God's word is. Psalm one nineteen verse nine says the following: one of my favorite verses. How can a young man keep his way pure? Anybody know? Yeah, by guarding it. It's my ESV version. According to your word. Verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that what? That I might not sin against you. How important is God's word? It guards us. Protects us. It keeps us. It matures us. It strengthens us. So what happens if I neglect God's word? Yeah, it weakens us. Verse 19 says this about God's word. It says, I'm sorry, Psalm 19, verse 7. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. How important is God's word? If you're a young man, young woman, feeling a little bit immature in the faith, that's okay. That's where you're at today. Well, how do you become wise? What does God say? He says in his word, he says that his word makes wise the simple. It strengthens young men and women. See, I would challenge us all as a church. I would challenge fathers in the faith, mothers in the faith, young men in the faith, young women in the faith. Find a life in God's word. Study God's word. Memorize God's word. Pray God's word. Let it just sort of roll around in your mind and allow for it to just affect your heart because it will guard you, it will protect you, it will guide you in the life that God has called you to live. And finally, John tells us, he says, young people, you've you've overcome the evil. And again, he's already said this. So it must be pretty important, right? Christ has made you victorious. Your ability to live the life of honoring and glorifying God, putting sin to death, is rooted and grounded in what Christ has done for you. You're stronger than you think. Because he is at work in you. He lives in you and you abide in him and his spirit is at work in you and I say live in the good of this gospel so let me close by reading again these verses and may you find encouragement can I have everybody stand maybe close your eyes and just listen to what God says and receive this encouragement Because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Heavenly Father, I ask that these words would encourage our hearts. Strengthen our resolve to pick up a cross and follow Jesus. Guide us and lead us, Lord, with encouragement as we seek to just know you. Trust in Christ until our last breath. Lord, it is our desire to bring you great glory. And so, Lord, would you fill us with your spirit that we might do that? Would you lead us and guide us? That we might, we just might bring you great glory. Lord, we thank you for saving us. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Died on a cross for all of our sins. So Lord, as we leave here, would you protect us and may you help us live in the good of this gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here this morning. May the Lord bless you. May he pour out his spirit. May you experience his peace in abundance. Have a great Sunday.